this morning, that's what we're talking about, the idea of making space. And so just a couple of like, side notes that we want to make space regularly for people. Um, if you're interested in seeing what our church is trying to become and who we think God's calling us to be, or you just want to take your next step spiritually, that class meets right after church in the gym today. Um, and so that's just right after. If you haven't signed up, just show up and we'll make, make space for you there. Uh, and then if you're a guest with us, please fill out that connection card that's in front of you and drop it in the, uh, the Welcome Center on your way out. And we have a gift for you that we'd like, to, like you to know that we're glad you're here today. But this idea of making space is one that I think matters for us. And here's what I mean. Have you ever walked into a space in which people have seated at a table? Now, this could be at work. It could be at school. This could be at a conference you're attending or even a family reunion. But you walk into a table where people are already seated and you're the last one to come. And as you walk to this table, one of two things is probably going to happen. Either... People do that awkward kind of look at you funny, but no one makes any attempt to, to make space for you. And so you just go sit at a table by yourself or whatever other table is open. And it's kind of this awkward feeling like, I'm not sure if they want me there, which means they don't, right? Like, or they just didn't think enough to like make space for you. Or the other thing that sometimes happens, which is way better if you're the person trying to be seated there, is someone at that table, they get up. They go grab another chair, and they say, we have a spot for you right here. Have you ever experienced that? Right? If you've experienced either one of these, you know what it's like when there is no space for you, and you just get the awkward, if we just give side eye to them, maybe they won't come sit here. Or they literally bring out a chair and say, hey, we've got room for one more. And so as a church, we want to be a people who do this. And so I would say it this way, a goal, a goal of our church is to make space others. Now, I watched last week, literally, this actually happened in this room last week. I watched a family come in, and they couldn't find a seat because everyone was sitting on the edges. There were some chairs open. I promise, if there are ever no chairs, we'll just add another service. But, but there were actually seats, but they couldn't see because everyone was sitting on the ends. So I say this gently and lovingly, move in next time, right? Make space, literally, make space for people. But here's the reality for us, that we want to be a people who make space. But why? Why does that matter? Why do I think making space goes beyond just literally giving a physical seat? Because here's where I would say it this way. Um, it used to be assumed that people had a perspective of the world that was centered in some way Christian, especially in America. And it didn't mean they were Christians, but there were just some assumptions that were made. And so for good and bad... That's not necessarily true today. And so what do I mean by that? I mean um, that you could assume people saw a world from a, like a Christian perspective at some level. It didn't mean they were Christians. It didn't mean they believed in Jesus. But it meant there was like a, a kind of framework in which they saw the world. The problem for that is lots of people would say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but they didn't really know who Jesus was. They just understood they, I, like the idea of being good or being moral or being ethical. And so the good part of this right now is that People are not doing that. That's actually a good thing, believe it or not. The bad thing is that means people are not doing that. And they're not assuming that they have the same framework or living from this same framework. And so why does that matter? Well, here's what I would say. A few years ago, Fuller Seminary um, out in California put together a study. Because one of the trends they saw happening in the church in America was disconcerting to them. Um, they were seeing that young people were graduating from high school and graduating from the church. And, and that's disconcerting for lots of reasons, right? I mean, like that's something that if we have kids or grandkids, they're like, oh, 
that's not good. We think the church matters. We think the message of Jesus matters. And so we want to see people who are engaged in that for their whole life. Now, some of them would graduate from high school and graduate from the church and come back, but a large percentage were not. And so they want to know why not. And then they started looking into this and they said, well, the interesting thing that happened was, and this was true from churches of 100 or less or churches over 10,000. There were some churches that this just wasn't true. The people were graduating from high school, but continuing to live into the faith and live into their church and serving in ways that were tangible and could see and were engaged in their spiritual growth. And so what were the difference between these two things? And so I would say it this way. Um, they kept making space, right? I mean, they actually wrote a book. I'm going to read a story from today, but it called Growing Young. And so um, the argument they make was that these churches began to grow young. And they don't mean they like only prioritize young people, but, but by empowering the next generation, what they find is they actually created space for every generation. And so these churches are incredibly intergenerational. It doesn't mean, it, I would use this phrase, right? We could be um, a church with every generation, or we can be intergenerational. Those are two different things, and here's how I would describe the difference. A church that has every generation literally just is that. People of all ages go there. A church that is intergenerational is intentional in connecting generations to one another. And that distinction matters. And so here's what they found in their study. In fact, we've got a slide. We're going to show you um, two slides, six priorities. We're going to talk about one of them today. But here's what they wanted to unlock keychain leadership. And I'll explain that another week, not today. Uh, they wanted to empathize with today's young people. And then this one we are talking about today. They wanted to take Jesus' message seriously. The other three or this, they wanted to fuel a warm community. They wanted to prioritize young people and families everywhere. And we'll talk about what that actually looks like. And they wanted to be the best neighbors. Shocking, they found that young people were turned off by churches that weren't great neighbors to their community. You go, what in the world are you thinking about on this list? You're like, well, of course, these things actually make sense. You're right. They do. In fact, we're going to talk about these things because we think as we look at the scriptures, they actually reveal to us some things we begin to see in the scripture. And so today we're asking this question, what does it mean to take Jesus's message seriously? And so we're going to spend some time focusing on that this morning. And I say it this way, right? You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess I'd say it this way. Sometimes we were so much about doctrinal issues, and I care about that stuff a lot. Actually, I'm teaching a class on it right after the service, because I think that stuff matters. But we'll focus so much on a little thing that we'll miss the big picture of what Jesus is doing in the world and what God calls us to holy. And so let's go back to the question, who's Jesus? Right, Matthew and Luke paint this picture of Jesus and this birth narrative. It's a cool story. You've heard it at Christmas. Um, you know, but, but I don't want to start there because I think that sometimes can miss something. I actually want to start with John. And so today we're going to jump through a, several scriptures. And so if you try to keep up in your Bible, good luck. Um, but they're also in your bulletin listed, so you can find them if you are curious. Because if, if you can keep up with me, I'll be impressed. But in John 1, we see the picture of who is Jesus. And here's what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm going to stop for just a second, because I think sometimes we can misread this. 
We could, we could also re-say this this way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. The word in the Bible, when we say the word, we're actually talking about a person, the person of Jesus. So going on. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's all who did receive him. <clears throat> to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. If you're not starting to catch a theme here, what John wants us to know, and really all the gospel writers want us to know, is Jesus is God. And we're going to talk about why that matters in just a couple of minutes. In fact, in John uh, chapter 10, we see this, this line that says, I and the Father are one. Right? We are one in the same. In fact, if we were to jump ahead and read in chapter 14, here's what John writes again. Don't you know me, Philip? This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So why, why are we talking about these words of John where John makes it clear that Jesus and the Father are one? Right. One of the things that Christianity has been accused of at, at times over the centuries is being like polytheistic, meaning believe in lots of gods, because we talk about Father, Son, and Spirit. And, but we would say it this way. Well, we think they are singular, um, but they're in relationship with one another. So God is in relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he means it. So in other words, when you see him, you see God. And so why does that matter when we think about the Bible? And here's why. We value the entire Bible, but we read all of it in light 
of Jesus. I'm going to say that again because that's really important for us. We value the entire Bible, but we read all of it in light of Jesus. And you go, why does that matter? Most people um, are not committed to following Jesus, but they're committed to a generic religion that's about being like a good person. And so we're going to talk about the scriptures in just a minute, about questions we have and things we wrestle with. And, but we're going to come back to that line in just a minute, the, the idea that we would begin to understand the Bible in light of Jesus, the entire thing. And so what happens is we buy into like kind of this generic um, kind of faith. And, and so I don't know that I want to call it necessarily Christianity, because when I describe it, you're going to go, is that really what we believe in? But this is what we found. This is what the fuller study found. And Christian Smith, who's at Notre Dame, and others did all this research to found that most people— in America, their religion looks like this. It's moralistic, in other words, moral, meaning you'll be good, do good. It's therapeutic, meaning we see God as like the counselor we go to when there's something wrong, so we don't need God until something is wrong, and then we go to God because he's like our therapist, and so we hope that he'll make us right. And they would add to this, and this is actually historical in terms of America, that it's deism, it's deists. And what do I mean by deist? Well, this is how I would describe that. Um, it's a devaluing of the Holy Spirit or God at work in the world. In other words, God started things, and then he said, good luck. So most people, when if you were to try to wrestle through their faith, what they really believe at the end of the day is that we're supposed to be good, that God's like a therapist, and God started, but now it's up to us. And that's how most people, if we were to really kind of dive down into our theology, that's what most of us view as faith. Or to make it even simpler, uh, we'll teach people the golden rule, like do to others as you'd have them do to you. And that's central to the faith, and that's it. Now, we should do that. That's a good thing. I'm not saying don't do that. But if that becomes central to what we believe, it's probably not that valuable. So why am I saying all this stuff? Why does this matter? Because at the end of the day, there's a generation, or really probably all of us, who are wrestling with stuff we find in the scriptures. And we're not sure what we believe, or we're not sure why we believe it, or we're not sure we want to believe it. And so we ask this question, who is God? So have you ever read parts of the Bible and you go, oh, I don't know about this. Is that how God really functioned, or is this their understanding of how God functioned? Like that's, a, that's a question. You can ask that question. It's a good question, by the way. Did God do this, or did this happen, and they then attribute it to God? Wait, ooh, good question. Is that how God functions, or is that not? Because I read about Jesus, and he says this and this, but it doesn't look like that. And so I would say it this way. We should probably never read portions of the Old Testament and not read them in light of Jesus. Like, well, but the whole Bible, the whole Bible is good. Not, not arguing that. But we read the whole thing in light of him. In fact, what we begin to find is that he reorients how we understand even the character and nature of God. That's what we find all throughout the entire New Testament. The Old Testament is a story of God's people and their understanding of God. And Jesus enters into the picture and goes... Let me make sure we understand that we're talking about the same God. Let's make sure that we're on the same page. In fact, um, today I, I'm going to say this, and um, I have people look at my notes sometimes and just go, 
to say, hey, am I leaving anything out? Is this clear enough? And someone's question was, you need to change this. And I realized the line, ooh, yeah, that line wasn't very good. And so here's how I'll say it today instead of how I wrote it earlier. Um, we're followers of Jesus by definition to be Christian. We're not people who follow the Old Testament. Those are called Jews in today's world. And you go, well, why does that distinction matter? Because that distinction is incredibly important. Here's what I mean. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. The rules of the Old Testament are obsolete. And you're like, well, you know, well, here's what I would say to that. Because like, some of you are going, I know some of you are starting to squirm a little bit because I'm making you uncomfortable. That's a good thing. Just bear with me for a few more minutes. They're obsolete. I'm actually convinced of that. And you're going, he just said it twice. Um, in fact, some of you go, well, we should still value the rules of the Old Testament. Well, do you? Because I would argue that we all interpret them anyway. Like they're interpreted. If we, if we try to apply them today, we interpret them. And you're going, well, no, we just read them as the Bible says. Really? How many of you stoned your daughter who had sex before she was married? Probably not. Right? Go back and read some of those. They're crazy. We don't embrace them. Why? Because we interpret them. But then what do we interpret them from? Here's the challenge for us. We should interpret the entire Bible in light of Jesus. The filter is Jesus himself. And we understand who Jesus is by reading the New Testament. In fact, I would go this way. Um, I said a couple seconds ago that the rules of the Old Testament are obsolete. And some of you I know are cringing inside right now. There are over 600 of them. In fact, Paul says, if you're going to follow one of these rules as the way to go, you have to follow all of them. All of them. So ladies, cover your heads. Sorry, I, you know, men, you better never cover your head. So those hats, get. I mean, I like wearing a hat, right? So here's the thing. If we're going to follow these rules, we have to follow all of them. So you're like, well, this is, but I thought you said the Bible was good. I did. And if you're more confused right now, that's okay. But bear with me just a few more minutes. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to follow if we are committed to following Jesus. In fact, what Jesus does, he says this, you have heard it said, but I, say to you over and over again. In fact, what we begin to see is he begins to point out these ways that we're called to live, and it's a life radically defined by sacrificial love. In fact, the more I read about the life Jesus calls me to, the more I would like to go back to those 600 rules, because I think I have a better chance of following rules in black and white than living from a place of sacrificial, selfless, radical love. I think it's actually easier. And some of you right now I know are squirming because you're saying, well, you just said it's about love. Well, what if I see love differently than you see love? Well, here's the good news. Jesus gave his filter for what love actually looks like. So I'm just going to talk about it for just a second. Because if we lived and we wrestled from the place that Jesus calls us to live, we might find that our view of what is loving, our view of what God calls us to, is radically different. So what does Jesus actually say? He says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here's some stuff he goes on to say as well. Um, he does call us to particular ways of life. He says this, he takes murder, and he says we're going to be judged by our anger. Well, shoot, can we change that? He takes adultery, and he says, not only can you not commit the act, but you're not looked at someone lustfully. Well, that's a lot harder. He takes a simple way of divorce where you just sign a piece of paper, and he says, unless there's adultery, you should stay in this. He takes the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye. In other words, equal retribution, and he says, let it go and forgive. He takes the acceptable behavior in the Old Testament of love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he says, no, no, you got to love them both. And he calls us to particular He calls us to particular ways of life. He says this, you're called to be a people of prayer. He calls us to fast, but that means to not eat. Um, he calls us to not store up treasures. In other words, don't be driven by consuming stuff. He calls us to not worry. He calls us to not judge others in the ways that we don't want to be judged. He calls us to go and make disciples. I could go on and on. In fact, I will go on a little further. In fact, he calls us to love God and others in this way. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So now he's taken the entire Old Testament and he summarized it in two lines. Love the Lord of God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I want rules again because those are way easier than loving people as myself. To love God with my whole being, everything that I am, my mind, body, spirit, soul, however you want to use those words, with everything, I can do rules much easier than I can do that. I'm a firstborn. Rules are easy. If you're a firstborn, you understand. If you're not, you're like, what is he talking about? But Jesus keeps coming back to this idea. It is about our heart. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. 
It is about your heart and your life working together. Now, I think it matters here. I want to, I want to describe what, what the, when the scripture uses the word soul, we often think of like disembodied, like, my, like Halloween's coming up, right? And we think about these spirits. That is not the soul the Bible is talking about. What it's talking about is your entire being, your mind, body, spirit connected. When we use the word soul in scripture, we're meaning all that you are, right? God is not anti our bodies. He created them. He's pro, right? He's pro good body image. He thinks it matters. In fact, that's what we find. Jesus talks about the resurrection of the body. Right? This matters. But just imagine if you and I embrace this really hard stuff that Jesus calls us to, because it's really hard. It's really good. But if we embrace this, can you imagine that it might begin to change the world? Because it sure would change our lives. The problem is sometimes we're not focused on Jesus. We're focused on all the wrong things. Here's what I mean. Just this week, I, I saw something going on social media. And so if, I'm, if you're a part of this, I'm sorry. I actually didn't read all the comments because I didn't want to waste my time. Um, some people arguing about church music, like what kind of songs they sang um, on social media this week. And, and so I, I purposely didn't read the comments. So if you commented, the good news is I don't know. Um, but they're arguing about it. And, and, and it was interesting to me because the question wasn't, you know, what's the theological impact of this? How it was written? What was it written for? What does it tell us about who God is? It was basically, if it wasn't written during this period, it's not good. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about music for a second, we go back to the early church sang the Psalms. And then if we were to fast forward a little more, then we had Gregorian chants, right? Well, we're not doing that, thank goodness, because they don't want me. Then it was only the monks sang, and then it was only the priests could sing. And then we began to use bar tunes. By the way, lots of the hymns in your hymnal were written from bar tunes, if you didn't know that. And we would then implement them. We would take the music of the day and add words to it. Some of them have really bad theology. Same with new stuff, by the way. So our commitment here is that we're going to try to sing stuff that's really good theologically um, and hopefully sounds good. Here's what I mean by that. Thank you to a priest who mostly practices, right? They, they try to put in time outside of here because if they didn't, there's nothing worse than bad church music. And so you're like, why are you talking about all of these things? Because our kids and grandkids are listening to us argue about what song we're singing versus the idea of are we following Jesus? Because they could give a rip other than if it's bad. If it's bad, they don't. You know, bad music's bad music. I don't care who you are. Because what our kids and grandkids are then asking is this question. Is that about Jesus or your personal preference? And I get it. I have personal preferences too. And so you go, you probably, we probably see them every Sunday. No, you probably don't. But why does this matter? Because I don't know about you, but I want my kids and your kids and your grandkids and this community to know Jesus. I want to invite our kids and our grandkids and your kids and your grandkids into new ways of life. In fact, I want to be part of a church who's willing to have these really hard conversations about stuff that we don't know and willing to say, we don't know, we're not sure, we think this. I want to help the next generation know, hey, some things we got wrong Right? Our focus tended to be too much. Like growing up for me, like we tend to go, we really liked all of those rules, man. We could give you the list. We weren't always gracious to our neighbors. 
We weren't always kind. I want to say to our kids in the next generation, hey, we got some things wrong. Now, some of you, that's scary. Don't be scared because we're coming back to the scripture as the thing that is still foundational. In fact, um, starting in November, and we'll, we'll speak in the bulletin next week, um, we purposely waited until after groups had started because I know some of you didn't sign up for a group on purpose because you don't want to. But on Sunday mornings, like at 9 o'clock, I'm going to get here and just, if you have questions about faith or you're wrestling with something or you just want to talk, um, I'm going to literally be here with coffee and notes. For, and if no one shows up, it'll just be me and I'll hang out like I don't do anyway. But if you come, we'll just talk about these difficult conversations with no agenda. We'll just have a conversation. I'm not prepping anything. We'll just show up and have the conversation from 9 to 10 a.m. Because we want to be a church that makes space for difficult conversations and difficult people. And by the way, you and I, we're difficult. So we think they are difficult, but so are you. And I know I am. Just ask my wife. Why does this matter? Because too often, we've just added a little bit of Jesus to our life. Instead of having our entire life defined by Jesus. And to a generation coming up, they see the difference. And they want nothing to do with that. And frankly, neither do I. See, we wouldn't be a church that makes space for these difficult conversations because the implications, if we don't, are pretty big. We might not see our kids and our grandkids or kids in our community, or we won't be the place in which people gather to have questions about faith and wrestle with spiritual issues. Right? This next line is kind of important. People are leaving the church not because of Jesus. Did you catch that? People aren't leaving because of Jesus, but they are not seeing him, hearing about him, or observing lives of people who know him. I'm not really going to get into all the things that are separating them, but like, young people are tired of hearing about politics and their faith mixed together. They're just done with it. They're tired of about hearing how we'll try to compromise all kinds of other issues. They're just tired of it. And so am I. But what might happen? What might happen if we really knew who God is? Hint, he's Jesus. In fact, who's God? Jesus shared these words. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. Every person. Every person. On the face of this earth. Is someone that Jesus died to save. And what the world desperately needs to see are churches that see people from that perspective. Not enemies to fight, but people to be loved. What might happen if the next generation saw us doing that? And some of you are the next generation. Some of you are doing that. And I would say, thank you. Keep it up. But what might happen if we began to live into that kind of way? What might happen if you and I began to live that way as a local faith community? What might happen if we didn't say, hey, like, everything's okay? Because some of you are, like, really concerned, right? This whole thing about anti-rules. Because I, I like rules. They're easy. But what I find is that, that if we live from a place of love, it's way more effective of leading to actual life change. 
Very few of us, if we have stayed in church because of rules, right, we're probably kind of cranky. No offense if you're cranky. Maybe you just didn't get enough coffee. And if that's the case, before you leave, there's probably some coffee. You can get some more. But I was thinking about what does it look like to be a church who recognizes Jesus does very clearly call us to particular ways of life. We've read several of those, and there are many more. And so it isn't that there aren't things that are sinful, because there definitely are. But what might happen if we began to live from a place of love in the midst of the brokenness we see around us? And so I love this story. Darren wasn't sure why the Jacobson family wanted to meet with him. But when both parents, their daughter Janine and her boyfriend Edgar, filed silently and grimly into his office, the pastor had a pretty good guess. Janine was pregnant. Janine's parents had been pillars of the church for ages, so she was well-known in the congregation. Her parents pressed marriage. At 18 and 19 years old, neither Janine nor Edgar wanted to marry right away, but they also didn't consider abortion an option. They talked about placing the child for adoption. After an intense hour, Darren scheduled a follow-up meeting with just Janine and Edgar, suggesting they continue their dialogue. The three met regularly to explore scripture and discuss its teachings about both marriage and parenting, just in case. During one conversation, Janine asked, what do we do when I start showing? Their pastor responded, why don't you tell the church? At first, both young people shut down this idea. Darren wisely let them sit with the question on their own. A few weeks later, the couple sat facing him again. Edgar spoke first. We want to tell you two things. First, we're getting married. Second, we want to tell the church everything. The whole congregation. Darren was surprised, but grateful. He was already on board with their plan. After an initial meeting with the church elders, who were incredibly gracious and encouraging, Janine and Edgar found themselves standing before the congregation. That Sunday morning, they were nervous, but they were not alone. Darren stood between them, his arms around their shoulders, as the couple shared the news of the baby, as well as their upcoming marriage. The congregation surrounded them with support, not only in the moment, but also in the weeks and months to come. A surprise baby shower from their small group, a surprise wedding reception from her parents' small group. Reflecting back on that season, the pastor commented, no one wondered if supporting the couple, I'm, I'm going to read this twice because I want you to listen to this. No one wondered if supporting the couple would encourage other girls to get pregnant. People were just filled with gratitude to be part of such a community of grace. I'm going to read that a second time. No one wondered if supporting the couple would encourage other girls to get pregnant. People were just filled with gratitude to be part of such a community of grace. That gracious support extended to the baby boy who arrived a few months later. It also extended to others who felt safe enough to share their own secret pain and brokenness because of the way ministry leaders had loved Janine and Edgar. Two years later, Janine, Edgar, and their son are a vibrant part of this congregation growing young. When we visited, people shared the family story as a marker of how the church embodies Jesus' message. Not a story of shame, but of redemption. Not a narrative of being cast out based on sin, but one of being embraced and restored. One parent of teenagers in the congregation reflected, here 
It's not at all about being perfect. It's what we loved when we were looking for a church. We said, our kids are going to screw up. How are we going to be treated when they do? We want our kids to be in a place where God's people say, okay, you messed up. What now? Not a place that says, you messed up, and we don't know what to do with you. You might be better off someplace else. This is a congregation following Jesus, following Jesus earnestly today. The Jesus who did not condemn, but set free. The Jesus who took what seemed broken and restored wholeness. The Jesus who invited followers into a life of discipleship that required sacrifice. The Jesus who embodied the fullness of God's unconditional love and unending faithfulness. I want to be a part of a church that loves people in that way. Don't you? I want to be a part of a church that when I screw up or you screw up, that we come around one of those, it doesn't mean there aren't consequences for our sinfulness, because there are. But I want to be a part of a faith community in which we go, okay, now what? We believe in a God who sets free. We believe in a God who redeems and restores and makes all things new. I want to be part of a faith community who walks beside one another, who cares deeply, who follows Jesus fully. We may not do it perfectly, but we can get better. In fact, I'd say here's the challenge for you and I this day. Let's know Jesus more. Let's welcome doubt. And let's make space for others. Let's know Jesus more. Let's welcome doubt, and let's make space for others. We pray with me this morning as the praise team comes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in these moments and this day. And we know that we as a community of faith, um, we're definitely not perfect. And we desperately want to get better. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to open our eyes and our ears to the ways in which we don't love as you love that we might be a people who find ourselves radically defined by your Son. That we would recognize that as a people of God, we want to follow Jesus in everything that we say and do. That we want him to be the center of our lives. And so we want to preach the message of Jesus and who he is and invite others to follow him because we believe that that changes everything. And in this life and our life to come, Jesus offers this radical life of forgiveness, but he also calls us to a radical life of love that calls us to, honestly, a tough way of living. But a way of living that we believe can change not just our lives, but the world in which we live. And so, Father, will you help us this day to look like the people of God you've called us to be? May we be so defined by the love of your Son, seen in his death and resurrection, that we might understand John's words that for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. And he didn't send him to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so, Father, help us not to be people who condemn others, but to recognize that through Jesus we can help embrace people and bring them to newness and new life. And so may we be a people committed to following Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.